Good morning, church. It is so, so good to be with you today. If we haven't had a chance to meet before, my name is Jackie DeVries. My husband Bob and I have been Encounter Partners for 12 years, which makes us kind of old. And uh, we have four kids together, which makes us very tired. We... uh, I know that you can already tell from my center part and my natural stage presence, I'm a worship leader. (laughs) I've been on the Encounter worship team for almost as long as we've been at the church. Uh, But most recently, I had the absolute distinct pleasure and honor of joining the Encounter staff as the Fulton Heights worship leader. Hello to you friends at Fulton Heights. That was a position that I held uh, until this last January when I had to step down. I had to leave a job that I loved, a job that, dare I say, I was good at, Um, a job I'm still mourning the loss of, all because of a voice, a constant, insidious voice that was telling me every day, I am not enough. That because I couldn't give 100% of myself simultaneously to both my work and my family, that I was constantly disappointing everyone. That voice got louder and louder until it drowned out the voices of my family and my friends and even the voice of God. And that voice led me to a hospital room. Uh, The kind of hospital room where they take your shoelaces and your drawstrings away. The kind of hospital room where they cut the ribbon off your Bible. That voice led me to a two-week stay at Pine Rest. And that voice was shame. Shame is the poison that we are going to root out and confront today, friends, because it is toxic. It is identity warping. It is relationship ending. And it's life-threatening. So let's talk about it. First, we're going to talk about what it's not. I'm the preacher. I get to decide. Uh, We're going to differentiate it from guilt right off the bat because we use those words a lot together, shame and guilt, and we don't really understand what they mean. Guilt says I did something wrong. My actions were incongruent with my value system. In Christian circles, we call that conviction, and conviction is a perfectly godly response to sin. It says that there's something we need to repent, reorient, or surrender to God, yeah, in order to be reconciled in that relationship, and notice that's the point, to bring us back. But if left unattended, Guilt or shame will grow in guilt's shadow and lead us to believe that not what I did was wrong, but I am wrong also, that I am unforgivable, that I am now no longer worthy of that reconciliation, and that is condemnation. That is shame. Um, There's a person you may have heard of, Dr. Brene Brown. She's the leading researcher in uh, shame and vulnerability. And she defines shame as this, the intensely painful feeling or experience hmm, of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something about me is wrong and it makes me unlovable. I'm going to use my mommy word here and call it yucky. We feel yucky and unlovable. And the universal response to feeling yucky and unlovable is to cover and hide those parts of us from the people around us. Shame is the voice that tells you to cover and hide. So it's kind of easy to find your shame then. All you have to do is ask, what do I keep hidden? What do I not want people to see? What's the part of me that I don't want them to know about? If you're coming up blank right now, I'm going to officially say, shame on you. And now you're one of us. 
The point is shame doesn't discriminate, does it? We all have it. It doesn't care what's on your resume. It doesn't care what's in your bank account. And it definitely does not evade Christians, does it? I know I am not the first or the last to ever struggle with this idea of unconditional love. Yeah? This gospel of grace that's independent of who I am or what I do. Hmm. I mean, maybe I can intellectually grasp the idea that God loves the world. Yeah? That he gave his son for the sins of the world. Yeah, I can get that. But for me, for insignificant, yucky me, hmm. There's a better preacher than me, Pastor Craig Groeschel, and he says that uh, what we all want to hear someday when we meet our maker is, well done, good and faithful servant, yeah? But if we're honest, what a lot of us expect to hear is forgiven, but disappointing. When we believe that there's something that we've done, something that was done to us, or something about us that's yucky and unlovable. Shame tells us to cover and hide every time. And when we listen to the voice of shame, friends, we are not hearing God's voice. That's what we're going to see today in our passage. We're going to go to Genesis 3. You can open that up in your Bible app or follow along on the screen. Um, Genesis 3 is often called the original sin, right, or the fall of man, and it is those things. But today we're going to look at it with a specific lens to see the origin of shame because this passage is going to show us where shame comes from, what it causes us to do, and how we confront it. And guys, there is something irrational about preaching that makes you love alliteration. I could have said that 87 ways, but making them all start with C was so much fun. All right. Well, side note though, we can't actually jump into chapter 3 without the setup that's in chapter 2, the very last verse, okay? God has just finished creating his heavens and his earth, right? And the pinnacle of his creation are his image bearers, his people, the heirs to his throne. He gives them dominion over the earth and he puts them in in his garden of paradise. And that's where we find them in chapter 2, verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. We have to understand here that the word naked means so much more than just their physical state. Yes, they were physically exposed, but naked they were seen. They were vulnerable. They were known completely by both each other and by God. And all of those relationships were founded in ultimate intimacy. They were naked and unashamed. And here comes the turn. In chapter 3, we find Eve having a conversation with the serpent who represents Satan, or is. All right, and they're having a conversation about what God's actual instructions were regarding the fruit from the tree of knowledge, which he said, don't eat it. And Satan in this conversation is laying a foundation for Eve and read yourself into her place. That's where we are today. He's laying the foundation to silence the voice of God by calling into question God's words. God's words represent his credibility, his judgment, his believability, his trustworthiness. So Satan is saying to her, did God really say? Did he really mean that? Do you know what God actually said? Can you trust what God says? So by the time we find her in verse 5, the voice of truth is very hard to hear. In verse 5, he comes in for the kill. God knows that when you eat from it, the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
Satan says, you will be like God. Didn't the creation account call them image bearers? Like, doesn't that mean the same thing? Yeah, Genesis 1:27. God created mankind in his likeness. Eve already is the likeness of God. Every man, woman, and child is an image bearer of God, a reflection of his perfection. The likeness of God is our inherent defining quality. And the author of shame here is trying to convince her and us that we are not who God said we are. Shame comes when we believe a lie about ourselves. Here, they're willing to believe that they're not what God said they are, and in just a minute, we're gonna see how you can believe that you are something God said you're not. The point is, it's all a lie. Look at what happens when they eat the fruit. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. You feel it, right? You feel how this word has changed. We started off in two, in chapter two, where naked was beautiful and cherished, yeah? It was something to be celebrated. It was the, the, they were the pinnacle of God's creation in their naked state. And now, oh, naked is dirty. Vulnerability, mm, that means I'm weak. Naked is shameful. And the only thing that changed, church, the only thing that changed is how they feel about being naked. What they think being naked means about them. Check this. This comes largely from a Christian author named Lisa Turkhurst. All through our lives, we accumulate these labels, okay? They come from words. They come from life circumstances. So we got our successful businessman. We all know this story. He's uh, looking forward to a promotion. He's going to get the company car. Only when he goes to meet with his bosses, he gets the pink slip, yeah? But because shame... He's still going to put a suit on every day and go to the office, yeah? Because shame has twisted this label into the lie that he is only worth his next success. And he will always, always be as bad as his greatest failure. How about, um, get my hair out of the way. How about if you're divorced? Maybe you're the divorced spouse who wanted to stay in the relationship. That feels yucky. I'm not going to put that on the online dating profile. Because that would expose the lie that I believe, that there must be something wrong with me, otherwise they would have stayed. Um, we give labels to ourselves. Any Enneagram twos here? I am. I'm helpful. Yeah? Except shame. Shame will twist this, friends. Shame will twist this into the lie that you have to give love in order to get it. Ever subs, uh, struggled with a substance in your life? You might be feeling like, well, I wrecked all of my relationships so far, I probably don't deserve them anymore. Is your body bigger or smaller than the average body? Well, that's unattractive, and that's ugly, and that's unhealthy, and that's probably your fault. And we can't talk about shame without this one, guys. Um, There's someone listening right now who's wearing this label. There's someone listening right now who is the victim of abuse, who's thinking I was exploited and betrayed by someone who was supposed to love and protect me. And shame is telling me that the only way to make sense of that injustice, that atrocity, is to believe that the truly atrocious thing is me. All of these labels, 
all of them can get twisted into lies that we believe about ourselves. And when we believe them, they become liabilities. Because I can't be seen like this. I certainly cannot be loved like this. So what does listening to the voice of shame do? What does it make us do? If you're not thinking cover and hide, I haven't done my job very well. Let's look at the end of verse 7. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. We cover. We hide. We disconnect. We disconnect from the people around us. Because shame is telling us that we are unsuitable for that relationship. Um, we also kind of end up on a self-destructive path because we're going to talk about these fig leaves for just a minute, right? I don't know about you. I picture in the story that um, Adam and Eve went for like maximum coverage, right? So like a fiddle leaf fig, yeah? The big, big ones that are crunchy. Can you imagine wearing a swimsuit made out of that? (gasps) Right? It's not a fashion designer's choice material. It's accessible, And it's easy. It's also temporary, inadequate, and it has the potential to hurt. And we all know that I'm not talking about plants anymore. What are our figurative fig leaves? See what I did? (laughs) Dr. Brown says that our fig leaves, our innate responses to shame and vulnerability are numbing, perfecting, and pretending. I'm going to numb it away so I can't feel it. And don't think this is just a substance issue because I'm a french fries girl. Yeah? We numb with food, we numb with sex, we numb with social media and doom scrolling, we numb with work, right? Or maybe we're going to perfect it. We're going to make everything seem like it's perfect so that no one can see my inadequacies, which are the sources of my shame. Or we're just going to pretend that my collective failings aren't there. That sounds a little like pride, doesn't it? Yeah, pride is a fig leaf for shame. I'm going to let Pastor Dirk cover that one soon. What we have to understand is that all of these responses, numbing, perfecting, pretending, they all lead us to disconnection and isolation. They disconnect us from ourselves. They disconnect us from the people around us. They disconnect us from God. And this is Satan's ultimate goal, to separate us from anyone, anything, any voice that can speak truth into our hearts, especially God. Because God is about to enter the chat. And it's his voice that shows us how we confront shame. Take a look at verse 9. But the Lord God, always the best words in the Bible. Don't care where you are, you read those words, something awesome is going to happen. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? There are a lot of questions God could have asked right now, right? When he found them. Uh, who, Who do you think you are? How could you? What were you thinking? My dad's line was always, help me understand. (laughs) But that's not what God says because you can't fight shame with shame, can you? No, God says, where are you? And friends, he knows where they are. He knows what they did. This is not God coming to call them out for their sin. This is God the Father calling his kids back home. Where are you? Come back to me. I still want to be with you. 
Um, shame is confronted in the context of relationship. God calls us back into relationship first because that is where we can root out and confront the shame together. Shame can only exist in the darkness of isolation. Shame is trying to tell us. Shame depends on us believing that we are yucky and alone. But do you know what God said the minute he made man? It's not good for man to be alone. Genesis 2.18. It's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make another one. She's going to be pretty. It's not good for us to be alone. It's not good for us to cover and hide because shame can only exist in that darkness, in isolation, in the covered and hidden things. And it cannot survive the light of relationship, empathy, and compassion. Shame is confronted in the context of relationship. We need community to remind us that God is calling us back. We need community to magnify the voice of truth that says you are not your worst moment. You are not defined by what someone did to you. You are not the sum of your successes and your failures and you are never ever disqualified from love even when you feel unlovable. God says, I still want to be with you. Come back. Where are you? So Adam answers. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? God calls us back to himself so that he can help us untangle these lies, right? And the first thing he has to address is where they came from. Who told you? Whose lies, whose voice are you listening to? Who told you that being naked is anything, anything less than perfect and beautiful? Who told you that you have to earn your love and respect from other people? Who told you that you're broken and unlovable? Who told you your life is unredeemable? Who told you your body size is ugly? And who told you that you are worthless? Who told you? Because this is not who I said you are. He calls us back into relationship. He exposes these lies and where they came from. And then... Then God says, okay, tell me what you did. Tell me what happened. Tell me about it, why you're feeling this way. There's something we need to talk about because I want to still be with you. And friends, I can't let us miss that in verse 10, the moment when Adam comes out of hiding. I can't let us miss the fact that if we're going to say shame has a voice, it doesn't go quietly. And coming out of hiding is hard. It's hard. And I think we can all put ourselves in that position and know what it felt like for Adam to come out of those trees because it would feel exactly like coming out of our own hiding, like talking about our own failings, like talking about and exposing our own worst moments. And that is painful sometimes. And if you're sitting there thinking, okay, thanks, no, but no thanks. (laughs) Solution seems worse than the problem. I have hope. Because yes, confronting shame requires exposure and vulnerability, but God doesn't leave us there. 
Look at the most beautiful verse in the entire chapter. It's verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. God met them in their shame, exposed the lies they were told, called them back into relationship, and then sacrificed a part of his own creation. Something died, and from that, God made them a better covering. Not perfect. No, not complete. That comes later. That perfect and complete covering would come when God himself would take the form of a man in Jesus Christ and (laughs) endure the most shameful act ever recorded in human history, where he would willingly take on every evil, every bad decision, every negative thought we've ever had about ourselves, every judgment cast, and every atrocity ever committed against another image bearer. He would take it all on willingly and pay for it in full on the cross. Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy set before him, that's you. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross and scorned its shame. So now we, we have been clothed in the final and complete covering called the righteousness of Christ. So when shame says, you're damaged, Christ says, you're redeemed. And when shame tells you you're dirty and you're ugly and you're yucky, shame says, no, Or Christ says, no, I have made you whole and complete. When shame tells you that you are insignificant, unwanted, disappointing, and disqualified, Christ says you are chosen. You are beloved. You are accepted. You are mine. I love you to death and back again. So when shame tells you you're unworthy and you're worthless, Christ says, you're worth every drop of my blood. Every drop. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when shame tells you to cover and hide, Christ says, I've got you covered. You don't have to hide. Can you imagine, friends, with me for just a minute, what living like that would be like? Walking, blameless and free, doing, as the Apostle Paul says, boldly approaching the throne of grace, offering God our whole hearts, our whole selves, our whole lives, not just the parts that we think he's going to be proud of, but everything, good, bad, and ugly, naked and unashamed, knowing, knowing we will find grace and mercy. Do you know that these don't stick to the righteousness of Christ? Yeah? So we don't have to hide from each other. Imagine the intimacy of a marriage. Imagine the accountability of a friendship. Imagine the honesty of a small group conversation. Friends, we're getting ready to launch Rooted in the Fall. Save your Wednesday nights. How transforming, how impactful would that be if it was marked by honesty and transparency? If we met together willing to hear each other's stories and willing to be honest about our own. That's what I want to show you as we end our time together tonight. I told you before that um, I have a little experience with the voice of shame. 
and I want to tell you more of that story now. Uh, I have to start with the label that I wore since childhood. Um, it was capable. I heard two things on the regular growing up. Uh, they were, we expect excellence from you because we know you're capable of it. And anything worth doing is worth doing right. And those might have been helpful motivational words for some people, but for me, they twisted that label into the lie that my worth, my worth was defined by my capability and it was measured by my performance. So I was earning my love. I was hustling for my worthiness every day. And that lie is what helped shame grow in my heart when I took the job and found myself unable to meet my own expectations for what being a full-time mom and a fully devoted worship ministry leader looked like. I needed to be capable of both. So I just had to try harder, do more, work faster, hustle harder. I also have to tell you that I have a chronic disease and it's called depression. I've dealt with it since I, my adolescence. Uh, I'm no stranger. We've medication, counseling, all the therapy. My husband, Bob, and has walked this road with me now for 20 years. We are well uh, <laughs> versed in the symptoms of an oncoming attack. Yeah, we, we know what it looks like. It looks like uh, deteriorating self-care and increased isolation and um, lack of motivation, even feelings of worthlessness. The problem was this time to show any of those symptoms meant to expose my shame and my failure, but I could keep it hidden even from me by numbing, perfecting, and pretending, right? I could keep it hidden as long as I made it seem like everything was okay. And so I didn't even know what was happening, but under the surface, the shame of not being enough, feeling not enough, the shame of not being able to provide everything I wanted to give to my family and my work. The shame of feeling like a fraud for telling people that Jesus loved them when I felt unlovable. And the shame of feeling utterly worthless and completely replaceable was fueling the greatest depressive episode of my life. And eventually it got too big for fig leaves. And that shame-fueled, well-concealed depression made me start wanting to hide permanently. I remember um, telling a very beloved friend that I don't think I'm depressed. I just want to be able to drive my car without fantasizing about running into a telephone pole. I just want to take a shower without thinking about all the possibilities of my razor. And she looked at me with love. I, th I think she looked at me because I was staring at the floor. But I heard love in her voice as she said, Jackie, if you're having suicidal thoughts, your depression is not well controlled. And that was it. My shame was exposed. But shame doesn't go quietly and coming out of hiding is hard. So it took confiding in my whole small group that my daydreams had turned into actions. It took waking up my husband from a dead sleep at 2 a.m. when I found a stockpile of old painkillers. 
And it took making the excruciating decision to leave my family and my friends and go to Pine Rest to seek treatment because I needed help. And it took a hospital chaplain helping me understand that God was just as pleased with me there in that hospital room as he is when I'm leading worship on a stage or doing laundry at home. It took crying a lot and hearing God's voice call me back to him. When I was in the hospital, he gave me Psalm 116 that says, you have delivered my soul from death. You have saved my eyes from tears. You have kept my feet from falling. And so I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And to walk before the Lord, friends, is to be fully seen and fully known. To walk before the Lord is to be wholly exposed and wholly accepted. To walk before the Lord is to be naked and unashamed. And that is the hope that I walk in today. Friends, would you stand as I pray for us? Heavenly Father, your goodness is undeniable. Thank you. We thank you today for your willingness to seek us out, to call us back to you, to help us expose the lies that we've been tricked into believing. And most of all, most of all, Lord, we thank you for providing us with a perfect, permanent covering in Christ. Lord, would you, would you make that real to us this week as we walk with you? Give us, give us a, a, some way to know the truth and power that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, we're so grateful that you will not abandon us in our shame. And we worship you now for that. Amen.